Section 38 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 3. Section 38. Selected Poems by Joanna Bailey. 1762-1851. Joanna Bailey's early childhood was passed at Bothwell, Scotland, where she was born in 1762. Of this time she drew a picture in her well-known birthday lines to her sister. Dear Agnes, gleamed with joy and dashed with tears, o'er us have glided almost sixty years since we on Bothwell's bonny braes were seen, by those whose eyes long closed in death have been. Two tiny imps, who scarcely stoop to gather the slender harebell or the purple heather, no taller than the foxglove's spiky stem, that dew of morning studs with silvery gem. Then every butterfly that crossed our view with joyful shout was greeted as it flew, and moth and ladybird and beetle bright in sheeny gold were each a wondrous sight. Then, as we paddled barefoot, side by side, among the sunny shallows of the Clyde, minnows, or spotted par with twinkling fin, swimming in mazy rings the pool within, a thrill of gladness through our bosoms sent seen in the power of early wonderment. Joanna Bailey When Joanna was six, her father was appointed to the charge of the Kirk at Hamilton. Her early growth went on, not in books, but in the fearlessness with which she ran upon the top of walls and parapets of bridges, and in all daring. "'Look at Miss Jack,' said a farmer, as she dashed by. "'She sits her horse as if it were a bit of herself.' At eleven she could not read well. "'Twas thou,' she said in lines to her sister. "'Twas thou, who wouldst me first to look upon the page of printed book. That thing by me abhorred, and with address didst win me from my thoughtless idleness, when all too old became with bootless haste in fitful sports the precious time to waste. Thy love of tale and story was the stroke at which my dormant fancy first awoke, and ghosts and witches in my busy brain arose in sombre show, a motley train. In 1776 Dr. James Bailey was made Professor of Divinity at Glasgow University, during the two years the family lived in the college atmosphere, Joanna first read Comus, and, led by the delight it awakened, the great epic of Milton. It was here that her vigor and disputatious turn of mind cast in awe over her companions. After her father's death she settled, in 1784, with her mother and brother and sister in London. She had made herself familiar with English literature, and above all she had studied Shakespeare with enthusiasm. Circumscribed now by the brick and mortar of London streets, in exchange for the fair views and liberties of her native fruitlands, Joanna found her first expression in a volume of Fugitive Verses, published in 1790. The book caused so little comment that the words of but one friendly hand are preserved, that the poems were truly unsophisticated representations of nature. Joanna's walk was along calm and unhurried ways. She could have had a considerable place in society and the world of lions if she had cared. 
the wife of her uncle and name-father, the autonomist Dr. John Hunter, was no other than the famous Mrs. Ann Hunter, a songwright of genius. Her poem, The Son of Alknomuk Shall Never Complain, is one of the classics of English song, and the best rendering of the Indian spirit ever condensed into so small of space. She was also a woman of grace and dignity, a power in London drawing-rooms, and Hayden set songs of hers to music. But the reserved Joanna was tempted to no light triumphs. Eight years later was published her first volume of Plays on the Passions. It contained Basil, a tragedy on love, The Trial, a comedy on the same subject, and De Montfort, a tragedy on hatred. The thought of a saying dramatic composition had burst upon the author one summer afternoon as she sat sewing with her mother. She had a high moral purpose in her plan of composition, she said in her preface, that purpose being the ultimate utterance of the drama. Plot and incident she set little value upon, and she rejected the presentation of the most splendid event if it did not appertain to the development of the passion. In other words, what is and was commonly of secondary consideration in the swift passage of the dramatic action became in her hands the stated and paramount object. Feeling and passion are not precipitated by incident in her drama, as in real life. The play, De Montfort, was presented at Drury Lane Theatre in 1800, but in spite of every effort and the acting of John Kemble and Mrs. Siddons, it had a run of but eleven nights. In 1802, Miss Bailey published her second volume of Plays on the Passions. It contained a comedy on hatred, Ethwald, a tragedy on ambition, and a comedy on ambition. Her adherence to her old plan brought upon her an attack from Geoffrey in the Edinburgh Review. He claimed that the complexity of the moral nature of man made Joanna's theory false and absurd, that a play was too narrow to show the complete growth of a passion, and that the end of the drama is the entertainment of the audience. He asserted that she imitated and plagiarized Shakespeare, while he admitted her insight into human nature, her grasp of character, and her devotion to her work. About the time of the appearance of this volume, Joanna fixed her residence with her mother and sister among the lanes and fields of Hampstead, where they continued throughout their lives. The first volume of Miscellaneous Plays came out in 1804. In the preface, she stated that her opinions set forth in her first preface were unchanged, but the plays had a freer construction. Miss Bailey, wrote Geoffrey in his review, cannot possibly write a tragedy, or an act of a tragedy, without showing genius and exemplifying a more dramatic conception and expression than any of her modern competitor. Constantine Paleologus, which the volume contained, had the liveliest commendation and popularity, and was several times put upon the stage with spectacular effect. In the year of the publication of Joanna's Miscellaneous Plays, Sir Walter Scott came to London, and seeking an introduction through a common friend, made the way for a lifelong friendship between the two. He had just brought out The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Miss Bailey was already a famous writer, with fast friends in Lucy Aiken, Mary Berry, Mrs. Siddons, and other workers in art and literature. But the hearty commendation of her countrymen, whom she is said to have come upon unexpectedly when reading Marmion to a group of friends, she valued beyond other praise. The legend is that she read through the passage firmly to the close, 
and only lost self-control in her sympathy with the emotion of a friend. The wild harp that silent hung by silver Avon's holy shore, till twice one hundred years rolled o'er, when she the bold enchantress came, from the pale willows snatched the treasure, with fearless hand and heart in flame, and swept it with a kindred measure. Till Avon's swans, while rung the grove with Monfort's hate and Basil's love, awakening at the inspired strain, deemed their own Shakespeare lived again. The year 1810 saw The Family Legend, a play founded on a tragic history of the Campbell clan. Scott wrote a prologue and brought out the play in the Edinburgh Theatre. You have only to imagine, he told the author, all that you could wish to give success to a play, and your conceptions will still fall short of the complete and decided triumph of the family legend. The attacks which Geoffrey had made upon her verse were continued when she published, in 1812, her third volume of Plays on the Passions. His voice, however, did not diminish the admiration for the character drawing with which the book was greeted, or for the lyric outbursts occurring now and then in the dramas. Joanna's quiet Hampstead life was broken in 1813 by a genial meeting in London with the ambitious Madame de Stael, and again with a vivacious little Irishwoman, Maria Edgeworth. She was keeping her promise of not writing more, but during a visit to Sir Walter in 1820 her imagination was touched by Scotch tales, and she published Metrical Legends the following year. In this vast Abbotsford she finally consented to meet Geoffrey. The plucky little writer and the unshrinking critic at once became friends, and thenceforward Geoffrey never went to London without visiting her in Hampstead. Her moral courage throughout life recalls the physical courage which characterized her youth. She never concealed her religious convictions, and in 1831 she published her ideas in A View of the General Tenor of the New Testament Regarding the Nature and Dignity of Jesus Christ. In 1836, having finally given up the long hope of seeing her plays become popular upon the stage, she prepared a complete edition of her dramas, with the addition of three plays never before made public. Romero, a tragedy, The Alienated Manor, a comedy on jealousy, and Henriquez, a tragedy on remorse. The Edinburgh Review immediately put forth a eulogistic notice of the collected edition, and at last admitted that the reviewer had changed his judgment, and esteemed the author as a dramatist above Byron and Scott. May God support both you and me, and give us comfort and consolation when it is most wanted, wrote Miss Bailey to Mary Berry in 1837. As for myself, I do not wish to be one year younger than I am, and have no desire, were it possible, to begin life again, even under the most honorable circumstances. I have great cause for humble thankfulness, and I am thankful. In 1840, Geoffrey wrote, I have been twice out to Hampstead and found Joanna Bailey as fresh, natural, and amiable as ever, and as little like a tragic muse. And again in 1842, She is marvelous in health and spirit, not a bit deaf, blind, or torpid. About this time she published her last book, a volume of Fugitive Verses. A sweeter picture of old age was never seen, wrote Harriet Martineau. Her figure was small, light, and active. Her countenance, in its expression of serenity, harmonized wonderfully with her gay conversation and her cheerful voice. Her eyes were beautiful, dark, 
bright and penetrating, with the full innocent gaze of childhood. Her face was altogether comely, and her dress did justice to it. She wore her own silvery hair and a mob-cap, with its delicate lace border fitting close around her face. She was well-dressed, in handsome dark silks, and her lace caps and collars looked always new. No Quaker was ever neater, while she kept up with the times in her dress as in her habit of mind, as far as became her years. In her whole appearance there was always something for even the passing stranger to admire, and never anything for the most familiar friend to wish otherwise. She died, without suffering, in the full possession of her faculties, in her ninetieth year, 1851. Her dramatic and poetical works are collected in one volume, 1843. Her life, with selections from her songs, may be found in The Songstress of Scotland, by Sarah Teitler and J. L. Watson, 1871. Wooed and Married and Ah The bride, she is winsome and bonny, Her hair it is snowed, say sleek, And faithful and kind is her johnny, Yet fast fall the tears on her cheek. New purlins are cause of her sorrow, New purlins, and plenishing too, the bride that has ah to borrow, has eaten right mickle ado. Wooed and married and ah, wooed and married and ah. Isna she very weel aff to be wooed and married at ah? Her mither then hastily spack. The lassie is glaukit with pride. In my pouch I had never a plaque on the day when I was a bride. E'en take to your wheel and be clever, and draw out your thread in the sun. The gear that is gifted, it never will last like the gear that is won. Wooed and married in ah. Will heavens and toker say small? I think ye are very well aft to be wooed and married at ah. Toot toot, quoth her grey-headed father. She's less o'er bride than a bairn. She's tain like a count for the heather, with sense and discretion to learn. Half husband, I trow, and half daddy, as humour inconstantly leans. The chill mon be patient and steady that yokes with a mate in her teens. A kerchief say deuce and say neat, or her locks that the wind used to blaw. I'm baith like to laugh and to greet when I think o' her married at all. Then out spake the wily bridegroom. Weel wailed were his wordies, I ween. I'm rich, though my coffer be tomb, with the blinks o' your bonny blueen. I'm prouder o' thee by my side though thy ruffles and ribbons be few, than if Kate o' the Croft were my bride, with purples and purlins enow. Dear and dearest of Oney, your wood and bouquet and eh, and do ye think scorn o' your Johnny, and grieve to be married at a? She turned, and she blushed, and she smiled, and she looked at say bashfully down. The pride o' her heart was beguiled, and she played with the sleeves o' her gown. She twirled the tag o' her lace, and she nippit her bodice say blue, sign blinket say sweet on his face, and aft like a mouklin she flew, wooed and married and ah, with Johnny to ruse her and ah, she thinks herself very weel aff to be wooed and married at ah. It was on a morn when we were thrang. It was on a morn when we were thrang, the kirn it crooned, the cheese was making and the bannocks on the girdle baking, when ain at the door chapped loud and lang. 
Yet the old good wife, and her maze say tight, of a this bald din tooks may notice I ween, for a chap at the door in braid daylight is like no chap that's heard at e'en. But the doxy old laird of the warlock glen, wo waited without, half blate, half cheery, and langed for a sight of his winsome dearie, raised up the latch and came cruisely ben. His coat it was new, and his orlay was white, his mittens and hose were cosy and bean, but a wooer that comes in braid daylight is no like a wooer that comes at e'en. He greeted the carline, and the lasses say bra, and his bare layered pow say smoothly he strake it, and he looked about, like a body half glaiket, on a bonny sweet nanny, the youngest of a. Ha! Laird! quo the carline, and look ye that way. Fie! Let see fancies bewilder you clean. An elderlin man, in the noon of the day, should be wiser than youngsters that come at e'en. Na, na, quo the palky old wife, I trow you'll no flash your head with a youthful gilly, as wild and as skeeg as a merland filly. Black Madge is far better and fitter for you. He hemmed and he hawed, and he drew in his mouth, and he squeezed the blue bannet his twa hands between. For a wooer that comes when the sun's in the south is mere landward than wooers that come at e'en. Black Madge is say careful. What's that to me? She's sober and sident, has sense in her noodle. She's douse and respect it. I care in a boodle, love when it be guided and fancies free. Madge tossed back her head with a saucy slight, and Nanny, loud laughing, ran out to the green. For a wooer that comes when the sun shines bright is like no wooer that comes at e'en. Then away flung the laird, and loud muttered he, Ah, the daughters of Eve, between Orkney and Tweed O. Black or fair, young or old, dame or damsel or widow, may gang in their pride to the deal for me. But the odd good wife, and her maze say tight, cared little for I his sour baining, I ween. For a wooer that comes in braid daylight is like no wooer that comes at e'en. Fie, let us a to the wedding. An old song, new bushket. Fie, let us a to the wedding, for they will be lilting there, for jocks to be married to Maggie, the lass with the gowden hair, and there will be jibbing and jeering and glancing of bonny dark een, loud laughing and smooth gibbet spearing o' questions baith pocky and keen. And there will be Bessie, the beauty, where raises her cock up, say he, and giggles at preachings and duty. Guild grant that she gang nay a gee. And there will be old Gordy Tawner, will coughed a young wife wi' his gowd. She'll flaunt with a silk gown upon her, but wow, he looks dowy and cowed, and brown Tibley Fowler, the heiress, will perk at the tap of the ha, and circle with suitors, was carries to catch up her gloves when they fa, repeat at her jokes as they cleck it, and haver and glower in her face, when torturless maids are neglected, and crying in scandalous case. And Maisie, what's clavering auntie, would match with her lorry the laird, and learns the young fool to be vaunty, but neither to spin nor to cared, and Andrew was granny as yearning to see him a clerical blade, 
was sent to the college for learning, and came back a cough as he gayed. And there will be old widow Martin, the cows herself twittle and twa, and thra gabbit Madge, well for certain, was jilted by Habba the Shaw, and Elspy, the soster say gently, a pattern of havens and scents, will strike on her mitten say dainty, and crack with Miss John in Spence, and Angus, the seer of Fairleys, that sits on the stain at his door, that tells about boogles, and mere lies than tongue ever uttered before, and there will be body the boaster say ready with hands and with tongue, proud Patty and silly Sam Foster will quarrel with old and with young, and Hugh, the town writer, I'm thinking, that trades on his lawyerly skill, will egg on the fighting and drinking, to bring after grist to his mill, and Maggie, na, na, will be civil, and let the wee birdie a be. A villapin tongue is the devil, and ne'er was encouraged by me. Then fie, let us a to the wedding, for they will be lilting there, for a money a fair distant hiding, the fun and the feasting to share. For they will get sheep's head, and haggis, and browse to the barley mow, e'en he that comes latest, and lag is, may feast upon dainties enow. Veal florentines in the on bacon, we'll plenish with raisins and fat, beef, mutton, and chuckies, a-taken, hat reeking fray spit and fray pat, and glasses, I trow nis nay said ill, to drink the young couple good luck. We'll filled with a broad breech and ladle fray punch-bowl as big as Dumbrook, and then we'll come dancing and daffing, and reeling and crossing a hands, till even odd lucky is laughing, as back as the Amri she stands. Sick bobbing and flinging and whirling, while fiddlers are making their din, and pipers are droning and skirling as loud as the roar of the lynn. Then fie, let us a to the wedding, for they will be lilting there, for jocks to be married to Maggie, the lass with a gowden hair. THE WEARY PUN DOTAU A young good wife is in my house, and thrifty means to be, but a she's run into the town, some fearly there to see. The weary punned, the weary punned, the weary punned, o toe. I soothly think, ere it be spun, I'll wear a layert pow. And when she sets her to her wheel, to draw her threads with care, in comes the chapman with his gear, and she can spin nay mare. The weary punned, etc. And she, like Oni Mary May, at fairs mon still be seen, at kirkyard preachings near the tent, at dances on the green. The weary punned, etc. Her dainty ear a fiddle charms, a bagpipes her delight, but for the crooning o' her wheel she does not care a mite. The weary punned, etc. You spake, my Kate, of snay-weight webs, made o' your linkum twine, but ah, I fear our bonny burn will ne'er lave a web o' thine, the weary punned, etc. Nay, smile again, my winsome mate, sick jeering means nay ill. Should I go sarkless to my grave, I'll lo and bless thee still, the weary punned, etc. From De Montfort, A Tragedy, Act Five, Scene Three Moonlight a wild path in a wood shaded with trees. Enter de Montfort, with a strong expression of disquiet, mixed with fear, upon his face, looking behind him, and bending his ear to the ground, 
as if he listened to something. De Montfort. How hollow groans the earth beneath my tread! Is there an echo here? Methinks it sounds as though some heavy footsteps followed me. I will advance no farther. Deep settled shadows rest across the path, and thickly tangled boughs o'erhang this spot. Oh, that a tenfold gloom did cover it, that mid the murky darkness I might strike, as in the wild confusion of a dream, things horrid, bloody, terrible, do pass as though they pass not, nor impress the mind with the fixed clearness of reality. An owl is heard screeching near him, starting. What sound is that? Listens, and the owl cries again. It is the screech-owl's cry. Foul bird of night, what spirit guides thee here? Art thou instinctive drawn to scenes of horror? I have heard of this. Pauses and listens. How those fallen leaves so rustle on the path, with whispering noise, as though the earth around me did utter secret things. The distant river, too, bears to mine ear a dismal wailing. O mysterious night! Thou art not silent. Many tongues hast thou. A distant gathering blast sounds through the wood, and dark clouds fleetly hasten o'er the sky. How that storm would rise, a raging storm, amidst the roar of warring elements I lift my hand and strike. But this pale light, the calm distinctness of each stilly thing, is terrible. Starting. Footsteps, and near me, too. He comes. He comes. I'll watch him further on. I cannot do it here. Exit. Enter Raisinbelt, and continues his way slowly from the bottom of the stage, as he advances to the front. The owl screams. He stops and listens, and the owl screams again. Raisinbelt. Ha! Does the night-bird greet me on my way? How much his hooting is in harmony with such a scene as this! I like it well. Oft when a boy, at the still twilight hour, I've leant my back against some knotted oak, and loudly mimicked him, till to my call he answer would return, and through the gloom we friendly converse held. Between me and the star-bespangled sky those aged oaks their crossing branches wave, and through them looks the pale and placid moon. How like a crocodile, or winged snake, yon sailing cloud bears on its dusky length. And now, transformed by the passing wind, methinks it seems a flying pegasus. Ay, but a shapeless band of blacker hue comes swiftly after. A hollow murmuring wind sounds through the trees. I hear it from afar. This bodes a storm. I must not linger here. A bell is heard at some distance. The convent bell. Tis distant still. It tells their hour of prayer. It sends a solemn sound upon the breeze, that, to a fearful, superstitious mind, in such a scene, would like a death knell come. Exit. To Mrs. Siddons Gifted of heaven, who hast, in days gone by, moved every heart, delighted every eye, while age and youth, of high and low degree, in sympathy were joined beholding thee, as in the drama's ever-changing scene thou heldst thy splendid state, our tragic queen. No barriers there thy fair domains confined, thy sovereign sway was o'er the human mind, 
and in the triumph of that witching hour thy lofty bearing well became thy power the impassioned changes of thy beauteous face thy stately form and high imperial grace thine arms impetuous tossed thy robes wide flow and the dark tempest gathered on thy brow what time thy flashing eye and lip of scorn down to the dust thy mimic foes have borne remorseful musings sunk to deep dejection the fixed and yearning looks of strong affection the active turmoil of a wrought bosom rending when pity love and honour are contending they who beheld all this right well i ween a lovely grand and wondrous sight have seen thy varied accents rapid fitful slow loud rage and fear-snatched whisper quick and low the burst of stifled love the wail of grief and tones of high command full solemn brief the change of voice and emphasis that threw light on obscurity and brought to view distinctions nice when grave or comic mood, or mingled humours, terse and new, elude common perception, as earth's smallest things to size and form the vast hoarfrost brings, that seemed as if some secret voice, to clear the ravelled meaning, whispered in thine ear, and thou hast e'en with him communion kept, who hast so long in Stratford's chancel slept, whose lines, where nature's brightest traces shine, alone were worthy deemed of powers like thine they who have heard all this have proved full well of soul exciting sound the mightiest spell but though time's lengthened shadows o'er thee glide and pomp of regal state is cast aside think not the glory of thy course is spent there's moonlight radiance to thy evening lent that to the mental world can never fade till all who saw thee in the grave are laid thy gracious form still moves in nightly dreams and what thou wast to the lulled sleeper seems while feverish fancy oft doth fondly trace with her curtained couch thy wondrous face yea and too many a white bereft and lone in musing hours though all to thee unknown soothing his earthly course of good and ill with all thy potent charm thou actest still and now in crowded room or rich saloon thy stately presence recognized how soon on thee the glance of many an eye is cast in grateful memory of pleasures past pleased to behold thee with becoming grace take as befits thee well an honoured place where blessed by many a heart long mayest thou stand among the virtuous matrons of our land a scotch song the goan glitters on the sward the lavrock's in the sky and collie on my plaid keeps ward and time is passing by oh no sad and slow and lengthened on the ground the shadow of our trysting bush it wears so slowly round my sheep-bell tinkles frae the west my lambs are bleating near but still the sound that i loathe best alack i cannot hear oh no sad and slow the shadow lingers still, and like a lane the ghost I stand and croon upon the hill. I hear below the water roar, the mill with crackling din, and Lucky scold and fray her door, to ca the bairnies in. Oh, no, 
sad and slow, these are nay sounds for me. The shadow of our trysting bush, it creeps so drearily. I croft ye stream, Frey Chapman Tern, a snood a bonny blue, and promised when our trysting cam to tie it round her brow. Oh no, sad and slow, the mark it win a pass, the shadow of that weary thorn is tethered on the grass. Oh, now I see her on the way, she's past the witch's no, she's climbing up the bonny's bray, my heart is in a low. Oh no, tis no so, tis glamry I have seen, the shadow of the hawthorn bush will move ne mare till e'en. My book of grace I'll try to read, though conned with little skill, when collie barks I'll raise my head and find her on the hill. Oh no, sad and slow, the time will ne'er be gain, the shadow of the trysting bush is fixed on Oni stain. Song Poverty Parts Good Company From an Old Scotch Air When my orlay was white as the foam o' the lynn, and siller was chinkin my pouches within, when my lambkins were bleatin on meadow and bray, as I went to my love in new cleeding gay, kind was she, and my friends were free, but poverty parts good company. How swift passed the minutes and hours of delight, when Piper played cheerily and Cruzy burned bright, and linked in my hand was the maiden say dear, as she footed the floor in her holy day gear. Woe is me, and can it then be, that poverty parts sick company. We met at the fair, and we met at the kirk, we met in the sunshine, we met in the mirk, and the sound o' her voice, and the blinks o' her een, the cheering in life in my bosom hae been, leaves for the tree, at Martinmas flee, and poverty parts sweet company. At bridal and fair I braced me with pride, the bros I had won, and kissed the bride, and loud was the laughter good fellows among, as I uttered my banter or chorused my song. Dowie and Dree are jesting in glee, when poverty spoils good company. Where'er I gaed, kindly lasses look sweet, and mithers and aunties were unco discreet, while Quebec and Bicker were set on the board, but now they pass by me, and never a word. Say lay it be, for the worldly and slee with poverty keep nay company, but the hope of my love is a cure for its smart, and the spay wife has told me to keep up my heart, for with my last sexpence her lof I hae crossed, and the bliss that is fated can ne'er be lost, though cruelly we may ilka day see how poverty parts dear company. THE KITTEN Wanton droll, whose harmless play beguiles the rustic's closing day, when, drawn the evening fire about, sit aged crone and thoughtless lout, and child upon his three-foot stool, waiting until his supper cool, and maid whose cheek outblooms the rose, as bright as a blazing faggot glows, who, bending to the fiery light, plies her task with busy slight. Come, show thy tricks and sportive graces, thus circled round with merry faces. Backward coiled and crouching low, with glaring eyeballs watch thy foe, the housewife spindle whirling round, or thread or straw that on the ground its shadows throws, by urchin sly held out to lure thy roving eye. Then stealing onward, fiercely spring upon the tempting, faithless thing, now wheeling round with bootless skill, 
thy bow-peep tail provokes thee still as still beyond thy curving side its jetty tip is seen to glide till from thy centre starting far thou sidelong veer'st with rump in air erected stiff and gait awry like madam in her tantrums high though ne'er a madam of them all whose silken kirtle sweeps the hall more varied trick and whim displays to catch the admiring stranger's gaze doth power in measured verses dwell all thy vagaries wild to tell ah no the start the jet the bound the giddy scamper round and round with leap and toss and high curvet and many a whirling somerset permitted by the modern muse expression technical to use these mock the deftest rhymester's skill but poor in art though rich in will the featest tumbler stage bedight to thee is but a clumsy wight who every limb and sinew strains to do what cost thee little pains for which i trow the gaping crowd will quit him oft with pondus loud but stopped the while thy wanton play applauses too thy pains repay for then beneath some urchin's hand with modest pride thou takest thy stand while many a stroke of kindness glides along thy back and tabby sides dilated swells thy glossy fur and loudly croons thy busy purr as timing well the equal sound thy clutching feet bepat the ground and all their harmless claws disclose like prickles of an early rose while soft from thy whiskered cheek thy half-closed eyes peer mild and meek but not alone by cottage fire do rustics rude thy feats admire the learned sage whose thoughts explore the wildest range of human lore or with unfettered fancy fly through airy heights of poesy pausing smiles with altered air to see thee climb his elbow-chair or struggling on the mat below hold warfare with his slippered toe the widowed dame or lonely maid who in the still but cheerless shade of home unsocial spends her age and rarely turns a lettered page upon her hearth for thee lets fall the rounded cork or paper ball nor chides thee on thy wicked watch the ends of ravels gain to catch but lets thee have thy wayward will perplexing oft her better skill e'en he whose mind of gloomy bent in lonely tower or prison pent reviews the coil of former days and loathes the world in all its ways what time the lamp's unsteady gleam hath roused him from his moody dream feels as thou gamblest round his seat his heart of pride less fiercely beat and smiles a link in thee to find that joins it still to living kind whence hast thou then thou witless puss the magic power to charm us thus is it that in thy glaring eye and rapid movements we descry whilst we at ease secure from ill the chimney corner snugly fill a lion darting on his prey a tiger at his ruthless play or is it that in thee we trace with all thy varied wanton grace an emblem viewed with kindred eye of tricky restless infancy ah many a lightly sportive child who hath like thee our wits beguiled too dull and sombre mankind grown with strange recoil our hearts disown and so poor kit must thou endure when thou becom'st a cat demure a full many a cuff and angry word chased roughly from the tempting board but yet for that thou hast i ween so oft our favoured playmate been soft be the change which thou shalt prove 
when time hath spoiled thee of our love, still be thou deemed by housewife fat a comely, careful, mousing cat, whose dish is, for the public good, replenished off with savoury food. Nor, when thy span of life is past, be thou to pond or dunghill cast, but gently, born on good man's spade, beneath the decent sod be laid, and children show with glistening eyes the place where poor old pussy lies. End of section 38